science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and Liz Neely is off this week. But this week, appropriately, we are presenting stories about becoming a mother. And if you didn't remember Sunday is Mother's Day, this is your official reminder. (laughs) I myself did not remember until I had to record these intros that I am recording right now. So, flowers are on their way. Uh, I myself have never become a mother, though I have successfully raised two dogs who are more or less well-behaved. I do have a mother. And she's one of the most powerful people I've ever known, so I have great respect for mothers, especially those who feel such a passion for motherhood that they are willing to surmount great obstacles to get there. Both of our storytellers today have unconventional paths to becoming a mother, and both of those paths, of course, involve science. Our first story today is from Bianca Jones Marlin. It was recorded in May 2019 at our nine-year anniversary show at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was older and wiser. I get a lot of texts from my husband. Um, he's a psychiatrist, and he works at uh, a public hospital in the city. So one of my favorite ones was, today a patient told me he's an avocado. <laughs> but one of the ones that really stuck with me was today I changed the trajectory of a child's life forever. And when I got home, he told me the full story of this patient. He had a patient who was a young woman and her partner came in and she was around eight months pregnant and she was so chock full of drugs that she couldn't have coherent conversation with my husband. They had to induce the labor And as a psychiatrist on call that night, he had to be the one to make the decision of whether or not that child could stay with her mother. And they decided to take that child away and put her in foster care. And as he told me this, we sat on the couch at home, me fighting back tears as I stroked my sleeping two-year-old on my lap. And I thought back to when I gave birth to her. And I thought back as to the minute I met her, I didn't let her go. I held her to my chest. I kissed her on the cheek. I sang into her ear. And I thought about that little girl. And I thought that there was no one singing to her. There was no one touching her. She wasn't wrapped. She wasn't rocked. She didn't have someone for five days straight, not wanting to let anyone else hold her. And she was going to go into what they call the system and become what they call a ward of the state. And I jokingly said, like, haha, wouldn't it be cool if we could take her? Can we take her though? Can we take her? Can we take her? And um, <laughs> of course, like, no, that's not the way it works. But that conversation opened up a serious conversation between my husband and I. And it was surrounding this one patient that we decided to sign up to be foster parents. And this doesn't come as a new idea. I think 
overall in our life. My husband's a psychiatrist and he studies how traumatic experience can induce certain pathologies in the brain like schizophrenia. And something traumatic could be um, having parents that really aren't supportive for you. Not supportive isn't like, oh, you should one kid. Like supportive isn't like they can't take care of you. Um, and I, my studies really dive into, uh, dive into parental behavior. I pretty much have dedicated my whole adult life studying parental behavior. My PhD was looking at how bad moms can be better with the love drug oxytocin. So I stopped mice from like eating their young and all of a sudden they started taking care of it. So I think I pretty much solved bad parenting. (laughs) And my postdoctoral research now is looking at how your grandparents mess you up. It's called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance and like the trauma that your grandparents have like mess you up. So yeah, that's a whole different, whole different conversation. But I'm really, really invested in not having parents mess you up. But I should say, this is not coming from some broken part in my heart where like my parents are all jacked up. My parents are two amazing people and I admire them so much because I think they really inspire this, this thought in me to make better parents. And that comes from the fact that my parents, my biological parents, were foster parents. So I had the blessed opportunity of growing up with many different brothers and sisters, coming from many different experiences, and living in one household. And so given the opportunity to do what my parents had done and to aid in pretty much trying to buffer what a parent who can't take care of their child can do, we decided to take, take this dive. And the dive is a pretty deep dive. I was like, okay, so we're going to sign up to be foster parents and like sign our names. We both have like doctorates. I'm like, oh, yes, let's pick this family because they have a doctor and a kid. They already have toys. Bam, that's it. Like next week I have a kid. We're walking down the park. like, look at my foster child. I know, right? <laughs> Not the case. <laughs> so we go online and we sign up and we find an agency. And they're like, so now we're going to start on a journey of 60 hours of class. I don't think I spent 60 hours of class in college, and I have a PhD. <laughs> 60 hours? Six zero. So we dedicated Saturday after Saturday going to these classes. And my husband would come off of a 24-hour shift and at 9 a.m. be sitting in the class. And we would take our daughter and drive her an hour and a half out to Long Island to my parents' house to have someone watch her so that we can figure out how to be a better parent and watch another child. <laughs> So we were really dedicated. <laughs> but I think one of the um, one of the, the parts that stands out to me in like the class was um, they asked us to close our eyes. They asked us to imagine ourselves as we as we were. So I'm an adult. I have a husband. And I have a child. And they said, imagine at night you're laying in bed and someone knocks on your door, and it's the people taker. And they come in and they say. Okay, now it's time for you to go. You have 30 minutes. Pack yourself up in a plastic bag. We have to go take you to your new family. And I don't know why. I don't know where they're taking me. I don't know this new family. But I'm forced to pack up. I have 30 minutes to say bye to my life. And I'm taken away by this person and put into another home. And when I get to the other home, the husband's like, hi, we've been waiting for you. I don't know these people. I have another daughter, and I'm forced to call 
this daughter, my daughter, and this family, my family. And at night, I'm laying down at a pillow that's not my pillow, but I'm supposed to feel comfortable and feel okay. Because when it comes down to it, if anything was taken away from my life, my family would be the one thing I would fight for the most. My job can go. My fancy pants can go. But my family is what I would fight for. And foster kids, that's the first thing they lose is their family. And I think that mental activity really put the hours into perspective of the Saturday classes, spending time away from my family, um, my daughter, doing the drives, because we were going to be given an opportunity to help buffer that traumatic experience. And if, by God, I spent 10 years of my life studying it, I could spend 60 hours putting the money where my mouth was. And so we finally finished the 60 hours of class. We had a home visit in which they come in and they check every nook and cranny of your home. And I thought, like, look, I study how to make best parents best parents. My house is baby proof. They came in, they were like, nope, 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 death, nope. And so, <laughs> so they go and do every nook and cranny of your personal life. They call your friends. They call your family. They ask about your background. They ask how you are as a person. They really dig in because they want to make sure you're someone who is capable of taking care of a child. And somehow, after all those hours, and after actually nailing my IKEA furniture to the wall, <laughs> we passed that test. We were giving the clear. And um, last Tuesday, <laughs> I was sitting in a cafe, and I got the call. And I looked at the phone and I was like, oh my gosh, it's either they found some, some other like rat bait like hidden behind my toilet or something and now I can't be a parent or this is happening. And I pick up the phone and they say, hi, um, we have a placement. It's a young lady um, around the same age as my daughter. Um, she has bruises that can't be explained by her parents and she's looking for immediate placement. My heart was so big and overwhelmed with joy at the prospect of finally being able to do what I've worked so hard to do and what I've thought so long about doing. And as I thought about that joy, I thought about the immediate seven days following that conversation. And ironically, I was heading out to go to a job interview in which I would tell a room of esteemed scientists how much I care about parental behavior because I've dedicated my life to it and they should hire me because I'm so good at it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this caused a little bit of a, a, a dilemma in my mind because I knew I was going on that trip and applying for jobs. It's still a postdoc with a two-year-old and a husband who works nights and still trying to iron out my life. And so when given that opportunity, and balancing it out with my life, I had to make the decision to say no. And that was one of the hardest things I had to do in this journey thus far. Because I felt like I had failed that little girl. But wisdom has a way of showing itself, ironically. Because what we also learned in the class was that it's not about us, it's about the kids. And I knew by me saying no, 
I was saying yes to that child having a family that she deserved. But I went back that evening um, and I chatted with my husband about it. He reminded me that about that about that mental experiment, about leaving your house, about leaving your home, about leaving your family and entering a new home. And it's so how awkward it is to have a family saying, I've been waiting for you. But how heartbreaking would it be to have that little girl come <laughs> to an empty home? I think wisdom finds herself in that place in between no and not yet. It's not that I can't be a foster parent. And it's not that I'm a horrible foster parent. I'm just not there yet. And that's okay. <laughs> because that space in between no and not yet, that's where I find wisdom. And I know that's where I'll find her. Thank you. That was Bianca Jones Marlin. Bianca is a neuroscientist and postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University in the laboratory of Nobel laureate Richard Axel, where she investigates transgenerational epigenetic inheritance or how traumatic experiences in parents affect the brain structure of their offspring. As a graduate student, her research focused on the vital bond between parent and child and studied the use of neurochemicals such as the love drug, oxytocin, as a treatment to strengthen fragile and broken parent-child relationships. Her research has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Scientific American, and Discover Magazine's 100 Top Stories of 2015. Bianca has told several stories that have been on our podcast before, all of them amazing. We always love having her on the show, and I'm so happy to share with all of you some news from the Jones-Marlin family. First of all, Bianca and her husband have become foster parents since she told this story a year ago, which just really warmed my heart to hear. And second, she also, just a few days ago, brought a new baby into the world. Emery James Ulysses Marlin. Welcome, Emery, and congratulations on your awesome family. You really won the lottery, pal. Before we move on to our next story, I want to invite all of our listeners to attend Story Collider's Online Story Hour, our weekly live online shows. They're every Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and these shows feature storytellers from the Story Collider team and other storytellers you may have heard on the podcast before, telling all new stories and hanging out. It's really fun, and next week on May 15th, we are celebrating our 10-year anniversary. We're going to have all of our fan-favorite storytellers on the show, sharing their stories and updating us on where they are now. We're going to have Ben Lilly, the original host of this podcast, and Rose Eveleth, our original podcast editor and now the host of the Flash Forward podcast. They're going to be reminiscing with us about days of Story Collider past and thinking about what the future of stories about science might be. We're going to have trivia questions all night based on Story Collider stories so we can finally determine once and for all whether we have all actually learned about science from these past 10 years of stories. It's basically going to be a three hour long open house party with guests dropping in and out all night. And we'll be raising money for Story Collider if we meet our goal. I have committed to cutting off my ridiculous quarantine ponytail. <laughs> Live on the air. I'm ready for it. I've prepared my mind, my body, and my soul for this eventuality. <laughs> 
And of course, we do realize that not everyone is in a position to give right now and that many people are choosing to direct their disposable income to other causes. And I think that totally makes sense. We are happy to have you just in the audience if that's the case. But if you love what we do and you want us to keep producing our online shows and podcasts and keep making them free to attend, we really appreciate your support right now. So whatever the case is for you, consider joining us at our online shows. You can find them at storycliter.org and they're every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next story today is from Kim Evie. It was recorded in May 2019 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. The theme that night was changing the conversation. So I've always wanted to have a baby, but maybe not for the best reason. Most women want to become mothers because they love children, not me. Now, don't get me wrong, I like kids, they're fine, but... <laughs> For me, having a baby was a lot more about uh, nature and a lot less about nurture because, see, I'm adopted, and everyone else in my family, they're white. So for me, when I had a baby, it would be the first time that I would see my DNA in another human being. It would be like my own little science experiment. <laughs> and I was really excited to see the outcome. Would they have any of my personality traits, any of my mannerisms? But most importantly, would they look like me? In the Olin Mills family portrait of the Evies, circa 1978, <laughs> you see my paternal grandmother, her three sons, their wives, and their children, of which I am one, and you instantly see one of these things is not like the other. And I was born in Seoul, South Korea, I was adopted when I was 17 months old, and I instantly bonded with my family, my parents, I'm an only child, and I'm my extended family, but their love couldn't make me look like them, or anyone else in the upper middle class white neighborhoods that I grew up in, or anyone else in society in the 1970s, <laughs> basically. Um, I could count on one hand the number of Asian people that I knew of at the time in television and film, and only one of those people was a woman. Connie Chung, she was a reporter and later a news anchor, and so people were constantly asking me, are you going to be a reporter when you grow up? <laughs> uh, everyone else, they were men, and for the most part, the characters that they portrayed spoke with Asian accents. So I knew that's how people saw me. I remember being really engrossed in a book one time at the airport and slowly becoming aware of someone going, hello, hello, now nah, I guess she doesn't speak English. And suddenly I was like, oh, God, she's talking about me. And I went, oh, no, no, I do. I speak English. And I held up the book that I was reading, which clearly had the title, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. <laughs> In English, on the cover, I had a woman once say to me, oh, you're Oriental. We have one of your rugs. <laughs> exactly. Guys, I got to tell you, that was in 2000, I think, someone said that to me. Um, and when I was a kid, other kids would always make fun of me for being Japanese or Chinese. I'm Korean. And I've had my fair share of people tell me to go back to where I came from, kids and adults. So... Uh, I always looked forward to having a baby, to having my own miniature version of myself, because this mini-me would share not only my blood, but also my Asian features. Well, unfortunately, I'm a late bloomer. 
So by the time I met the love of my life, I was in my 30s. By the time we got married, I was in my mid-30s. And by the time we started trying to have a baby, I was almost 40. By the way, my husband is white. Surprise! <laughs> so we tried ourselves unsuccessfully for a year, and then we decided to enlist the help of a fertility specialist. So now my science experiment was going to get the help of science. <laughs> So after a year uh, with a fertility specialist, science, my savior, had failed. We had four uh, procedures and none of them worked. We had no baby and now we're running out of money. So I had to look at some cold hard facts. I had never been pregnant in my life, so I did not know if I was even possible for me to get pregnant. And uh, at this point, even if I did get pregnant, there's really uh, a, high like, a higher likelihood that I could have a miscarriage because of my age. And I knew after what I'd gone through emotionally in the past year with those four procedures that, you know, the idea of having, conceiving a child and then losing it, I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to handle that. So it was just becoming really apparent that with the money we had left, if we really wanted to make sure that we had a baby when all was said and done, the smarter thing to do was going to be to adopt. So I had to make a decision. Did I want to become a mother no matter what? Or did I just want a mini-me? Well, I dug really deep, and I realized that I just wanted a mini-me. I did. I was not proud of this fact. Um, in fact, I was actually really ashamed of it. You know, I wanted to be a good person. I wanted to be that altruistic, uh, you know, woman who just had this wellspring of love to give to any child in need, but that was not where I was at. I, um, I had this childhood dream, although it, at this point it was starting to feel like it was uh, just a childish, uh, crazy idea because saying it out loud now seemed like, uh, it seemed crazy. Kim, why do you want to have a baby? Because you love children? No, I just want to see what one looks like. <laughs> like, that, that was not something that I felt like I could say out loud uh, to anyone, because what kind of a shallow, horrible human being was I? So instead, what I did was I said, no, you know what? We are going to adopt. We're going to do that. And um, I sort of half-heartedly looked into it, and then time passed, and eventually my story morphed into, well, we're looking into other options. And then it became, eh, we tried. Didn't work out. And that was my party line for about three years, whenever, you know, the idea of kids came up. And then one day I was at a party and somebody asked if I wanted to have kids and instead of, oh, we tried, it didn't work out. For some reason I said something like, no, I'm good. And <laughs> I realized in that moment, and I was shocked <laughs> that I was not good. I realized that those words were a lie and that I, I wanted a baby. Whoa. <laughs> now, you have to bear in mind, I had just quit a job six months prior. So part of me was worried that I was just trying to fill a void, you know, like a naive teenager, even though I was in my mid-40s. <laughs> but um, I think the bigger part of me knew that I had needed this break to get some clarity. And what I figured out was that um, when I made the decision not to keep trying to have my own child, I was grieving, and I didn't realize that. So every decision after that was informed by this grief. And so I made the mistake of thinking that 
this grief was me and that it was a character defect that I had, that I was missing some component of motherhood that all women were supposed to have. But I wasn't. I was just really sad. And so now that some time had passed and I was able to uh, just relax and know what I wanted, I did have that wellspring of love. And it had filled up. And I was ready to become a mother. And not the mother of a mini-me, but just a mother. So I went home <laughs> and I told my unsuspecting husband <laughs> how I had changed my mind in the last two hours since he had seen me. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun conversation. Um, but we ended up finding an adoption agency that specializes in open adoption, and that's when you stay in touch as the adoptive family, you stay in touch with the birth mother if everybody wants to do that. And that was important to me because I don't have any, um, I don't have any idea who my birth parents are. So, and then the adoption agency actually put to rest any final hopes that I might have had about a mini-me because they told me, you know what, it's really, really uncommon for Asian babies to get adopted out because just culturally, Asian people tend to, you know, the family unit comes in and they help to raise a baby if a baby is born out of wedlock. So it's like, okay, that's great. Doesn't matter. We started working on something called the Dear Birth Mother Letter, which uh, probably in olden times was just a lovely missive, you know, that was actually a letter telling the birth mother what your intentions were. These days, it is a four-page color brochure with pictures and text, and it's you presenting yourself and your life to the birth mother. Um... They told us at the orientation that the birth mothers get a lot of these, so it's really important for you to make yourself stand out somehow. So I was just hoping, beyond hope, that maybe the fact that I was adopted would help us stand out somehow. Well, that is actually what happened. So our dear birth mother letter arrived in a box to a woman's house, a potential birth mother's house, with literally hundreds of other letters. She was so overwhelmed by this that she let her mother sort out the initial pile of letters. And um, I will tell you right now that she, our birth mother was also adopted from Russia. And so when her mother, I'll call our birth mother T, when T's mother first sorted through this and she saw our brochure and she saw pictures of me with my birth parent, I mean with my with my parents, she thought, well, T's going to identify with this because even though T was from a Russian orphanage, she's actually 100% Asian. And her mom, who was sorting through those brochures, is white, just like my parents. And to make things even better, um, the birth father was also white, just like my husband. So we met our son 40 minutes after he was born. He's now three years old. His name is Charlie. And if you saw him with us, you would never in a million years guess that he was not our biological child. So strangely, I got my mini-me after all. <laughs> now, would I have loved my son any less if he was not the same race as me? Of course not. Um, I look at him and I see nature and nurture working in him in the same mysterious and exquisite way that it works in all of us. And I see my husband in his outgoing personality. I see me in his um, compassionate nature. I see both of us in his sense of humor, although that could just be because my husband and I both 
have the maturity level of three-year-olds. <laughs> um, and I look at his beautiful little face, and I can clearly see the physical features of each of his birth parents working in harmony to create this, you know, wonderful little guy. But when we go out together in public, strangers are always saying things like, oh, I can't tell who he looks more like, mom or dad. <laughs> you know? And um, when they tell me how cute he is, I always say, thank you. He's adopted. <laughs> Because for me, um, you know, adoption used to be a story about being different. And now for me, it's a story about being the same. The same as my son, the same as his birth mother. And we are all connected through nature and nurture. And this is a story that I just want to share with as many people as possible. So thank you. <laughs> That was Kim Evie. Kim is a Los Angeles-based actress and stand-up comedian who has been writing and performing comedy for over three decades. In L.A., Kim has studied at the Groundlings and Improv Olympic and taught sketch comedy writing at Acme Comedy Theater. She has appeared in numerous commercials and TV shows, written for children's animation, created and starred in the Sony-produced web series Gorgeous Tiny Chicken Machine Show, and produced the trailblazing series The Guild, a web show so successful that it was actually put on display in the Smithsonian American History Museum. Storyclutter is so grateful for Bianca Jones-Marlin and Kim Evie for sharing their stories with us today. The Storyclutter is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Storyclutter is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, and Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Tracy Rowland, Audrey Kearns, and Joseph Scrimshaw. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Jun Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and Lyric Hyperion for hosting these shows. And to all the folks out there who are becoming moms right now, and to my mom, happy Mother's Day. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.